Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! All right, everybody, welcome back to our second of two Big Friday editions of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. If you're a first-time listener, welcome to the show. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back to America's fastest-growing political podcast. Getting things started in our second edition of Steak for Breakfast today, he is the president and CEO of Borders 911, former acting ICE director who served last during the Trump administration, retired federal agent, great friend of the show, Mr. Tom Holman. Welcome back, and happy Friday. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, listen, we're all busy, and... Uh, no one's more busier than you. Why don't you give our listenership a little update on Borders 911? I've seen you've been doing a lot of travel and a lot of speaking events, bringing awareness to the crisis that's going on down on the U.S. southern border right now. Actually, we are planning our, our, a huge fundraising event April 4th. April 4th at Mar-a-Lago, Trump Resort. Uh, got the whole team down there, Sarah Carter, Tom Holman, uh, Derek Maltz, Mark Morgan, Oak, Jason Jones. Um we got a lot of special guests. Uh, uh, Sebastian Clark is going to be the master of ceremonies. Like Dash Patel, Congressman Ronnie Jackson, Captain uh, Thorpe. We got we got a great lineup down there. President Trump's been invited himself. And, uh, we want people to come down and uh, go to border nine one one dot com. Get tickets. Come on down. Again, this is a, this is a nonprofit five hundred one c three c four. We're not you know this every dollar we bring in is being spent on our mission, which is traveling around the country. Uh, in in battleground states to educate the American people on why border security matters. It's just not about illegal immigration. It's about fentanyl. It's about terrorism. It's about sex trafficking. And when they get to the voting booth in November, hopefully one of their key metrics for decision making is going to be border security, border security and national security. You can't have one without the other. So we're we're forced. Like to see a lot of people down there. Uh, Sounds like an absolutely huge event and uh, one that I know our listenership will be looking forward to. All-star lineup, of course, all the people who served and had such big influence during the last time Donald Trump was in office. You had Cash Patel, Sarah Carter, yourself, Mark Morgan, etc. And uh, should be a great event. I, I do want to ask you, though, you know, we're on, the, we're on the heels of the end of the week here. And uh, it seems like House Republicans were able to at least figuratively get something done this week. I'm sure you at least found a little satisfaction in seeing Alejandro Mayorkas finally impeached. Oh, absolutely. I've been calling for his impeachment two and a half years. I mean, it's too, you know, it's, it's, I guess late's better than ever, but yeah, he absolutely needs to be impeached. The man, uh, he uh, he's an architect of this open border, which has caused over 112,000 Americans dead from bad and all. It's caused over 1,700 aliens dying crossing the border. It's caused a 600% increase in sex trafficking in women and children. It has caused, you know, uh, 440,000 children enter this country uh, illegally. Then the government lost track of nearly 100,000 of them. It has resulted in cartels making billions of dollars. It has resulted in, in a historic number of people off the terrorist watch list entering this country. Absolutely should be in peace. He violated the oath of office he took, and he made this country less safe. And, uh, yeah, he needs to be all accountable. If they, can, if they can impeach President Trump for making a phone call, there's no reason Alejandro Mayorka should be impeached for everything he's done or did do. In addition to slandering the men of the horse patrol when he knew they were innocent. True story. You know, I, I always had to bring it up with you, Tom, because you're the expert here. During the Trump administration, over the course of four years of the safest and most secure border in the history of our country, we encountered and apprehended 11 people who were suspected of possible terrorism, people that were on the terrorist watch list and, and things adjacent to that, et cetera, when Donald Trump was in office. 11 over the course of four years. Alejandro Mayorkas's 
lack of border security has allowed for over 300 now to be apprehended, in addition to well over 2.5 million getaways in the course of the last three and a half years. When you talk about not just securing our border and, and instituting things like MPP and, and, and you know policies that make sense, when you talk about the national security state or lack thereof and the people who are at the top right now in D.C., you've got Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland and Valerie Jarrett, people of that nature, who just seem to are so reactionary, they have to wait for something to happen and then it spirals out of control. And then they try to get a handle on it, which we know that's not the way to handle the situation. What can we say for the potentiality of something like absolutely horrific happening in this country in the very near future? It's coming. It's coming. And I hate saying that, but uh, I've been around the game for, you know, over 35 years. I'm telling you, it's coming. They've arrested over 300, but again, we got got a couple of men on Gataways. There's a reason why 2 million people decided I'm going to pay more to get away. I'm not going to pay a small amount just to cross the border, turn myself in, and get a get, get released within a day, get a free airline ticket to the city of my choice, get work authorization, I get a job while my case is pending, I get a free hotel room, three meals a day, and medical attention. There's a reason too many people take, take advantage of that giveaway program. They didn't want to be vetted. They didn't want to be fingerprinted. That's just scared the hell out of everybody. It does me. I've been doing this for, like I say, three and a half decades. I've never more been more concerned about the safety and security of this nation than I am right now. And that's why that's why I, can, I, I started border nine one one. It's about it's it's a border emergency that is a this is the biggest national security vulnerability I've seen since nine eleven. You know we, we always said never forget, never forget. Well, apparently a lot of politicians did. Alejandro Mayorkas has the same data points you and I have. If he was a man with any integrity, he'd tell the White House to secure the border or I'm quitting. He's had a press conference with national TV all over the place telling why he's pretty. I'm telling you, something's coming. There's no way. Uh, there's, there's thousands of people in this world who want to see the United States destroyed. And why would they try to buy a plane ticket or visa like the 9-11 terrorists did when they know they're going, they're, there's betting programs now? They're going to simply go to Mexico, pay the cartels a little extra money, and be a god away. Now, when you talk about the level of corruption on both sides of the U.S. southern border right now, how the cartels have interwoven themselves into communities within the United States, all over the country, but especially at their inflection points on on the U.S. southern border, and then how much control they have both over the police, the military, even the government in Mexico. If there are people, as, as you know, that experts would consider high value targets when it comes to talking about terrorism, if there was, if they presented themselves in Mexico and and, and laid out how they wanted to get into the United States without detection. You, you undoubtedly think that under this regime right now, it could happen almost instantly without pretty much anything happening to these people? Well, absolutely. Look, you know, the, the border is what I hope. Right now, on average, 70%, 7 out of 10 agents are not on the line. And the border is wide open. When, when the, the, a big group comes across the border, the cartels, they decide who comes across, where they cross, and and how they cross, so they know whatever, like the 30% of the agents remaining on the line, they'll push a group of 200 through, which is going to make those agents seize that area to deal with that issue. Then that opens up huge gaps on the southern border. And look, you, you, you called exactly right. The police, the military, and the, and the Mexican government, many of them are corrupt. I'm not saying everybody. I'm sure there's a cop in Mexico. Some police officers in Mexico want to do the right thing. They became police officers for the right reasons. 
but many of them are corrupt. I did this for three decades. That's why we never shared a lot of intelligence with them because we know we couldn't trust them. Even our vetted units, even the people that we vetted that we worked with on task forces, we told them a lot, but we didn't tell them a lot of things, uh, uh, really uh, significant intelligence because we, we just didn't trust them. And look, and, and you're right, the, the, the biggest the biggest problem in Mexico is that the criminal cartels must control the country. They control they control our southern border. They control the country, Mexico. That Mexico has not been able to take them out. They tried for decades, and the reason they haven't because number one, they're making a hell of a lot of money uh, from the corruption end of it, and number two, they're afraid of them. Right. I mean, the Mexican Mexican cartels have military grade weapons. They've been using IEDs against the military that actually tries to interfere with their operations. I've got videos the last couple of weeks showing. You know, military, uh, uh, Mexican military people being blown up trying to take action with the cartels. That's why that's why they arrest big cartel uh, 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 leadership and the government releases them in 24 hours because of threats of violence. The criminal cartels in Mexico, there's only one way they're going to be taken out, and that's where the United States is taking action against them. You know, I, a lot of our listenership always wonders that we do so much coverage on, you know, not only what Congress does, but the, the interactions that are happening down on the U.S. southern border, how overworked and understaffed the, the people down there who are trying to defend our nation's sovereignty have to work all the time. What do you think it is with Alejandro Mayorkas? Tom, you know, you, you worked in government at different times where, where you guys probably have crossed paths, not literally, but you were serving in some context while he was, let's just say when he was back at CIS under the Obama administration, heavily scrutinized for the job he did there. He messed up the whole green card system to make it so much easier, more accessible. And then the people don't have to follow through with either getting their citizenships or, or in a lot of cases, even live in the United States. There are you know, 600, 700,000 Mexican citizens who have U.S. green cards who live in Mexico, who do nothing for our economy and just take the money back across the border every week when they get paid. And, and, and you know, this guy has always been funded and backed by a lot of dark money. And, and of course, thanks to people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, he was able to make it through Senate confirmation, uh, you know, when Joe Biden took office. And this is by far probably the worst cabinet hire in the history of our country. Well, the satisfaction I have is that he's being impeached, number one. That's only happened twice for a cabinet official history of the nation. Second of all, I can rest assured that when he leaves, when he retires, he's going to retire with zero respect, zero respect from the 60,000 men and women that wear, that wear that gun and wear that badge, whether it's the Border Patrol, whether it's ICE, whether it's Secret Service. He's going to retire with no respect. Men and women. He's got a little bit average. And I was, I'll tell you this what makes this man so terrible is in 2014 to 2015, under Barack Obama, uh, Joe Biden was vice president. Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas was deputy secretary to Jay Johnson. We had families, large amounts of families surging the border. We had, a, we had a border crisis at the time. So, how do we stop it? We built more detention facilities, including family residential centers. We detained people long enough to see a judge. Judge saw them within 35, 40 days. 90% were found not qualified for asylum. We put them on an airplane, sent them home, and the border numbers tanked. What is Alejandro Mayorkas doing now that he's the secretary? And what's Joe Biden doing now that the president? The complete opposite of what they know worked in 2014, 2015. They're not detaining them. They're not seeing a judge. They're being resourcing the judge. And if they do show up in court and get order removed, they're not being deported because Secretary Mayorkas had told ICE being in the country illegally on its own without a, a serious criminal conviction is not enough to seek an arrest. 
So he's doing a complete opposite of what he know worked in 2014, 2015. Again, this isn't mis- this isn't mismanagement. This isn't incompetence. This is by design. He's doing the opposite of what he know worked to secure that border. That's what makes this man disgusting. No, you know, you make an excellent point there because I remember there were so many people that were tied to the the Haitian migrant crisis and they had left Haiti after the, you know, the earthquakes there and in like 2008 or 2009, they made it over to places like Brazil. A lot of them had children in places like Brazil and Chile. A lot of the people who came over from Haiti and, and went over to Brazil helped build the Olympic training center there and the Olympic stadium. They, they worked through the Olympics. And then when the jobs evaporated, they said, well, you know, we've been here for a decade, but let's, you know, make our way up to the United States and get all of our free stuff there. You guys started taking them and putting them on airplanes and sending them back to Haiti. And they were like, wait a minute, hold on. I haven't lived in Haiti in like eight years. And, you know, at the time, the enforcement was much better. And it was like, well, too bad. Have fun. And as soon as that started happening and and people were like, okay, if you left Haiti, you know, before 2010, and now you're trying to get in the United States in 2014, 2015, they're sending you back to Haiti. And people just stopped coming. Like you said, the numbers dramatically dropped and and we had actual results. So it's some, it's crazy what's gone on with this border thing. But last thing I want to touch with you on Tom, largest deportation operation in the history of the galaxy is coming on the other side of the November election. We all know it's coming. We've heard so many good things about this shaping up, like utilizing different branches of government that might have never been used before, like even the Department of Transportation and, and things of that nature. Are you guys at least chalking up different ways to kind of attack this situation? Because, I mean, for the amount of people that Joe Biden's going to let in by the time Donald Trump takes office again in January of 2025, we're going to be looking at, you know, north of 15 million people. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking a lot about it. I talked to President Trump. I talked to him again Saturday night. Uh, we talked about it. So look, it, it, it's it's only depend on how many resources we get. You, and you're right, not to bring other agencies into involved with the transportation infrastructure, uh, 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 detention facilities. We have to have to have enough beds. Uh, we made you know contract with county jails that we do now. Ice contract with some county jail for for extra beds. So yeah, we got we got to get. An excessive amount of detention facilities. Because here's the issue: when people don't really know, when you arrest, let's say we go arrest, uh, let's go, we go arrest five people from Jamaica in, in New York City, or five people from you know uh, Turkey, or whatever. We just can't. We just don't come on an airplane and send them home, right? Even if they got an order of removal, you have to. We have to contact the country. The country has to agree to identify that they're a citizen of the country. Then they have to issue a travel document to allow them into the country. So we have to detain them for a short period of time while we work all the all the crap, all the bureaucratic. The, the bureaucratic I won't say it because I'm not I'm bureaucratic bullcrap that we have to put up with. <laughs> so we need detention beds. So that's going to be that's going to be the biggest, most expensive thing. Uh, but you know, again, we can contract with local sheriff's department. We can build detention facilities. We have, like, matter of fact, this administration has ended contracts across the board. Yep. We got to reopen facilities. They shut down. But it's going to be the resources and the transportation costs, but it can be done. Now, can we remove 15 million people in a year? No, it's not going to happen. It's just too big of an operation. But what, what I said is not only would – here's a difference. We'll still prioritize your criminal national security threats. However, no one's off the table. If you're in the country illegally, you better be looking over your shoulder. It's not okay to enter this country illegally. It's not okay to make a false claim to asylum. It's not okay to ignore a federal court order to leave this country. If you and I did that, we'd be in prison. So we're going to look at these people, and we're going to remove them. It's going to take some time, but it's all going to depend on the amount of resources. But we'll be fighting hard for those resources, and we'll have to look. 
if we don't do it, if we don't execute those final orders of removal issued by a federal judge, then what the hell are we doing? Right. Why, are we, why are we even doing this multi-billion dollar due process? You might as well just shut down the immigration courts. If their orders aren't going to mean anything, they're not going to be executed, then you shut down the immigration court, take the border through off the border. There's no consequences. There's, there's no legal system. So if we're going to spend billions of dollars on this due process, the legal system that's been put in place, then the final decision of the courts must be carried out or there is no due process. And that's what the left is pushing back on our threats of a massive deportation. And I testified about this the other day. A Democratic congressman asked, you made the statement, you're running the biggest deal, you want to qualify that? I said, no, I ain't going to qualify that. I said it, I meant it, and I'll do it. Bottom line. Because what, what is the option? You demand to have the right to due process. You demand to have the right to see a judge. You demand the taxpayers pay for all of this. But when the final decision is made, he's got to go home. Now we forget about the due process. Now he can just stay. I said, that's not the way it works. On the heels of a historic illegal crisis, when 90% will be order removed, it has to result in historic deportation operation. And under a Trump administration, that is going to happen. Absolutely fantastic. You know, I tell you one thing that's not happening under a Trump administration, and that's going to be amnesty for any of these people. Tom, it was great catching up with you today. It was uh, great catching up with you at any time that you could share with our listenership. Obviously, we're going to be linking Border 911 in the show description today. Anywhere else we could find you on social media or anything like that? Well, I'm on yeah, I'm on, uh, I'm on a lot of social media ever since I started this nonprofit. So, yeah, border911.com, get me there and give me a real Tom Holman. And, uh, look, we're going to fight this. we got 10 months. Your listeners need to understand. we got 10 months to take this back. And because we don't, I'm telling you, a lot of damage has already been done. It's going to take us years to fix this. But if we don't take it back in November and we got four more years, I don't think we can fix it. I really don't. So this is imperative. Get you out there and vote. Vote for the right people. Bring your friends and family. You got to, this November is live or die. We got to take it back. And I think we most certainly will. We'll be looking to talk about it again next time we catch up with the former acting ICE director, retired federal agent, and president and CEO of Borders 911. Tom Holman, thanks for joining us on the show today. Have a great rest of your weekend. All right, thank you. And they confirmed to me that this uh, has to do with a threat related to space. Uh, we already have from our other sourcing um, that there has been reporting on the Hill uh, that sources here have confirmed is in the ballpark, uh, which which is that it has to do with a an emerging capability from Russia that would be of grave seriousness um, potentially, but that the threat is not immediate. Now, Congressman Mike Turner, who chairs the Intelligence Committee, put out this notification uh, that he is asking the Biden administration to declassify this information and calling on members of Congress to come and view this information in the SCIF uh, because it is of such grave concern. The National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, was in the briefing room today and appeared to be taken off guard that Turner made this information known through a press release saying that he was actually planning. He had offered to speak to Mike Turner himself tomorrow. Very interesting way as we jump back into the news here to kick off our second all new edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast today. If I had on my 2024 bingo card when we originally set up the interview, Tom Holman in a limo and route to Fox Studios to participate in their afternoon programming as the way we were going to get him today to kick off the show. I wouldn't have guessed it, but there he was. We appreciate 
our real life Thanos for coming in and sharing with us for a little bit on everything that he's got going on with Border 911 in addition to prospective biggest deportation in the history of the galaxy starting in January of 2025. Remember, he said he only needs 100 days to get things rolling, and it's going to take a village, to say the least. That was Fox News' Jackie Heinrich. She was breaking fake news, apparently, when it came to the Mike Turner statement that broke across the wires this week. I really don't understand why anybody couldn't see the there there as this broke. You know, we, we just got to be a little bit less gullible here. We saw how frustrated Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden has been with Mike Johnson and the House of Representatives lately and what they've got going on in regards to blocking their legislation, much like Chuck Schumer did with H.R. 2, the Border Security Act of 2023. You know, they send the Senate agreement for border security, which is opening up the door to amnesty down to Mike Johnson. And he said it's dead on arrival. And then they send over the Ukraine supplemental aid package like two days later. And Mike Johnson says... Not only is this dead, but we're about to take two weeks off so I can show you how dead it is. But before Congress could break yesterday, at the end of the business day, you know, you've got this statement coming out from Congressman Mike Turner, who loves Ukraine, votes for all the supplementals, votes for all the continuing resolution, and doesn't do shit for border security as a Republican member of the House. Here's his statement. Today, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence has made available to all members of Congress information concerning a serious national security threat. I am requesting that President Biden declassify all information relating to this threat so that Congress, the administration, and all of our allies can openly discuss actions necessary to respond to this threat. It's so funny how Russia becomes the greatest threat in the history of threats right after Mike Johnson decides to not take up the supplemental aid package and shut down the Republican House for two weeks. I kind of saw this telegraphing of the way things usually happen up on Capitol Hill, but every single person and their mother on social media wanted to say, like, Russia's sending nukes to space, this, that, and the other thing. You know, Jake Sullivan, who's the national security advisor, comes out and says, well, we already had a pre-established meeting with Joe Biden and the Gang of Four, which includes Speaker Johnson, already set up. So I don't know why Mike Turner is making such a big deal out of this, but here's the thing. Ukraine not getting their money for two more weeks is not a good thing because you've got a lot of members of the House who are heading over to Europe right now for some NATO-related events, and everybody's going to be coming up to them with their hands out. And, you know, what it turns out is that this was probably something that requires attention. It was some classified information regarding Russia's anti-satellite capabilities and, and how they want to play Star Wars in, I guess you could call it orbit. But it's not like Russia was already sending nukes up to outer space to destroy our satellite infrastructure or had nukes in orbit already, which wouldn't really matter. Whether you have them on the ground or they're in orbit, they're still the same level of threat. But it just seemed like in an attempt to continue to demonize Putin and Russia, well-deservedly, Albeit, this wasn't going to pass the sniff test after going through the news for a couple hours. Now, there's also been a little bit of a feuding going on behind the scenes of the White House press pool. Not with Simon Atiba 
and KGP as you might normally think, but with KJP and Assistant White House Press Secretary John Kirby. So apparently, the Biden administration isn't too keen on the way KJP has delivered to the American public in her role as the press sec. She is very frequently not prepared. She is often very rude, and she just doesn't interact with the press in the way that you would normally. I mean, there's a time for the press secretary to be tough, but for someone who just folds up the binders and essentially says fuck off and and leaves the White House press pool on the frequency that she does, it's just not good for business. It's not a good representation of the message they're trying to get out for Joe Biden as Joe Biden when Joe Biden himself can't necessarily do it all the time. And what, what we've run into here is behind the scenes, there was a lot of pressure to move her out of there because she's the first black gay person to ever hold the job. Uh, something as historic and transparent as that oh. can't just get kicked out and replaced with an old white guy like John Kirby. So apparently when LaShonda Butler who's now the obscure senator who was appointed from California, took the job and left her post at Emily's List, which is a national fundraising organization which looks for people who are the most pro-life to fight against things like the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And they asked KJP, would you like her position in this job? Although she probably would, and it's very lucrative, she decided that her appointment was so historic and transparent she can't leave. So now there's like a budding of heads behind the scenes between those two. But when it comes to national security issues and things related to the military, they're going to wheel out Kirby because that's more of his forte when it comes to spinning on it. So I've got a couple clips pulled from him, and we're going to hear just what all the fuss about Russian nuclear anti-satellite capabilities in outer space was. Let's check it out. Talk about the potential to cripple satellites. Satellites can be used to drive everything from weather forecasting to wars. You say this is something that would not impact those of us on Earth. Why should Americans be concerned about a Russian capability that would target satellites? Any anti-satellite capability um, should be of general concern because you're right. There are private and public satellites circling the earth every day they do a number of things well you talked about um you, you talked about some of them there communications um command and control what's the transportation concern? what's the u.s meteorological concerns? concerns financial commercial concerns there's a lot of things the satellites do for for the whole population of uh, of earth and so uh, any capability that could disrupt that and that could therefore have um some impact on services here uh, on Earth and uh, across the world should be of concern to anybody, I think, and, and including the fact that we have astronauts uh, in, oftentimes in, in low orbit that, that could be at risk from uh, an anti-satellite capability. So you're talking about potential human lives here, too. So that was kind of rolling out what the huge big deal was that Mike Turner, you know, goes on all the news and puts out the statement and gets everybody riled up. You know, they hit Speaker Johnson before this kind of broke across the wire, and he's like, well, yeah, I'm extremely aware of this, and we're supposed to have a meeting with the White House to discuss it, so we'll have to see what happens and take it from there. But all this was was another ploy to get that supplemental aid package back on the floor for a vote before everybody broke for two weeks from Congress. And that's literally the justification of it. Now, is it highly concerning that Russia is maybe 
advancing towards having an anti-satellite system in our orbit with astronauts up there and the entire communication grid of the world essentially dependent on it? Sure. Uh, Does it look like we've got a little bit of egg on our face now that either A, we didn't think of it first, or B, we're not there already? Absolutely. But what else can you expect from this regime who's the most reactionary of probably any in the history since Pearl Harbor was attacked before World War II? I mean, I mean, that's just the way you have to look at it because, you know, when you see the Biden administration will do nothing and then they'll watch something happen and then they'll wait till it's so far out of control to even decide to poke at it. That's just the way that this government is ran right now. I mean, you're talking about the worst cabinet and agency head appointments in the history of our entire republic. Everyone from Janet Yellen and Xavier Becerra to, you know, uh, Lloyd Austin and Jake Sullivan, you name it, they're awful. Uh, Don't forget about Mayor Pete. It's just one after the other. Every time one of them comes out, I get, like, sick to my stomach. Tony Blinken, I mean, you name it, they're awful. And and they have, how did I put it on X the other day? unlubedly ass-rammed this country into the state it's in right now for over three years. So, you know, when Kirby tried to spin this a little bit, he made it more about, well, we know it's going on, but don't act like we can't handle it. And then he was pressured to give a little commentary on, you know, how he felt Mike Turner went about presenting this to the American public, which was essentially chicken little, the sky is falling, literally. Let's hear him. Some members of Congress described Turner's actions as reckless, given how you started this briefing. Is that how you would characterize what he did yesterday? I would just tell you that uh, we have followed a very rigorous process about how to determine whether information can be and should be downgraded and shared publicly. Um, we were, we are, were, and are in, in the process of that with this particular capability. And as I said in my opening statement, we're not going to get knocked off that process. We're not going to be, uh, we're not going to have our hand forced to get out there faster and further uh, than we think is appropriate. Nice. Are you concerned that Captain all members movie. of Congress now have had access to this classified intelligence? Uh, that that's really for. Uh, uh, Chairman Turner to speak to since he made that decision to make it available to all members of Congress. Um, uh, this is based on this. Uh, uh, look, uh, well, <laughs> again, we'll let Chairman Turner speak to his decision about a girl. Uh, how to to share the information. Uh, it is based on information that we again are still in the process of analyzing and sharing with allies and partners, and um, and and we're just not at a point right now. We don't believe we should be at a point right now. Uh, uh, to be too forthcoming in all the details of it as we work through this process. But as I said, uh, as we do with every other downgrade, we'll get to a point certainly where we can, we'll share with you as much as we can. You know, it's so funny. It's every chance and opportunity that this regime has to talk about the, and this is what they say, not what I say, Russia's diminished military capabilities. But now it's if we don't pass this supplemental aid package, Russia will defeat Ukraine. In addition to now they're beating us in the space race again when it comes to, I guess, global defense of our skies. So, you know, they talk out of both sides of their mouths, and you got to know how to, you know, filter the bullshit. But like I said, this was not about Russia beating us in anything. This was 
the regime's last-ditch effort to get their squishiest Republican to go out there and try to get this supplemental aid package on the floor before they broke. John Kirby was pressured about that. He didn't really like the answer. Let's check it out. Kremlin spokesman said today that uh, the bringing up this issue um, of the Russian anti-satellite uh, capability is a, a ploy by the White House to pressure Republicans in Congress to uh, to pass the supplemental and get aid to Ukraine. Uh, what's what's your reaction to that claim? Bollocks. Bollocks. Noah, define bollocks. Oh, I forgot Noah's not here. This is what I need you for, my man. The frustration with this administration in regards to this issue is very, very much on public display. You know, and and Mike Turner's deeds aren't going to go unnoticed. The House Freedom Caucus and, and one of our favorites, he'll be joining us on our Tuesday edition of the podcast. And that's Congressman Andy Ogles put out a statement yesterday afternoon. And he wanted to publicly address this, and it looks like he's going to. I'm going to read it right now. On February 14, 2024, at approximately 11.35 a.m. Eastern, the chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence revealed to the American people an imminent and perhaps existential threat to the United States of America. This revelation by the chairman was done with reckless disregard of the implications and consequences said information would have done into geopolitics, domestic and foreign relation markets and matters, or the well-being and psyche of the American people. In hindsight, it has become clear that the intent was not to ensure the safety of the homeland and the American people, but rather to ensure additional funding for Ukraine and the passage of an unreformed Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, as we like to discuss and talk about on our last edition of the show, FISA. This act continued poor judgment at a minimum and a complete breach of trust influenced by a pursuit of political agenda at its maximum. Mr. Speaker, it is with great intent that I formally request an inquiry into the impact that the chairman's statements may have had on the U.S. and foreign domestic policies. Furthermore, the chairman of the Select Intelligence Committee is solely appointed by the Speaker and under your direct purview, should the chairman retain his post, you have a duty and an obligation to reassure his body, our body, Congress, and the American people that the processes of the Intelligence Committee have not been corrupted by the very institutions they are charged with monitoring. Congress has a constitutional obligation to conduct oversight enshrined by the founders of our nation. Now it's time to act. Respectfully, Andy Ogles, Member of Congress, 5th District, Tennessee. So it looks like they're going after Mike Turner's committee chair because it seems like he might be bought and paid for by not only the establishment, but the military industrial complex. And, and at this point, when you're doing all that stuff, you're not working for the American people, you're working for the Biden regime. And, you know, the American first delegation of the House of Representatives ain't going to have it. The Freedom Caucus ain't going to have it. All of our fighters and warriors up there, albeit few, they're not going to have it. You want to get caught in the bathroom with somebody like Byron Donalds or Eli Crane after you try to push this bullshit on the American people? Ain't going to happen, my friend. So we'll see where this is going. Remember, we're on a little bit of a recess. I'm sure Speaker Johnson is going to take time to digest, and we'll check in with Congressman Ogles on Tuesday. Guys, wherever you listen to the podcast today, second of two great editions of Steak for Breakfast, please make sure you're subscribed to the show Hit the subscribe button, that plus follow button on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcast, or iHeartRadio. Make sure it's downloading to your electronic device. Helps us out big time. In addition, we've got social medias on Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram. Find our accounts, follow them, 
hit the notification bell. We're going to be jumping in just a few minutes with former deputy assistant to Donald Trump during his first term in office, Theo Wold, one of our great friends. But before we do, the press caught up with the speaker yesterday after that big meeting with Joe Biden and caught him heading back to his office, asked for a little commentary on this, so I thought I'd give it to you. Let's check it out. Talk to the American people. What did you learn in there? Let, let, me, um, let me give you an update. Uh, we just had an informative meeting of Jake Sullivan. Uh, this is a matter that we've known about for a few weeks. We requested a meeting uh, with the president. I did. We did in writing uh, in January. It's a serious matter. Some details have leaked. There's lots of conjecture. But what we're permitted to say in an unclassified setting it is that it, it is a very serious matter. It does involve Russia. It's not a matter that can involve delay. It's something we have to address seriously and on an immediate basis. And we are. I want you to know that um, the White House gave us information today. They're going to uh, remain in close contact with leaders of Congress uh, on the issue, and it will be dealt with. There's steady hands at the wheel. The United States can't rely on other nations to handle matters like this. Uh, we must do it ourselves, and we will. Um, I'm going to yield to the chairman and the ranking member or intelligence committee uh, to share a few more thoughts. And we'll leave it at that. You know, and it's like one of those things, you could see the urgency, for the most part, had left from the affect of Speaker Johnson. As he knows, he's probably dealing with more of the House Republicans complaining about Representative Mike Turner's way he presented this to the American people and the fact that this is not what we're doing anymore. You know, I, I just can't say it enough that with these elections coming up, if not this session, then in 2026, we have to get some of these people out of there. We've already seen so many retire and, and just deciding to pack it up and, and not, not come back to Congress anymore. You know, and, and, and you're seeing it from all sides of the House. Some of the news from the Democrat side, Clyburn's leaving his leadership role, but still going to be running for re-election for his Democrat House seat. This officially marks the end of the Pelosi, Hoyer, Clyburn era in leadership for the House of Representatives. And, you know, you see Ken Buck, you see so many others who are just bailing out and, and not wanting to have to deal with the fight that they were sent up there to do. It, it just, you know, makes for high drama, but at the same time, albeit messy, in a lot of instances, is working towards a better solution for the American people. Namely which, I saw... Emmer, who's in House leadership, put out a statement yesterday before he took off for the two weeks. You are not going to get another continuing resolution out of our conference, said the GOP whip Tom Emmer. Again, they left Congress and won't reconvene until February 28th. A reminder, current funding for the U.S. agencies run out in two tranches, March 1st and March 8th, essentially the 9th when the weekend starts. And then there was a little bit more of a, I guess you can call it heated infighting? Coming from a Republican conference, that's when they're meeting behind closed doors. Mike Johnson hosted an animated and at times heated meeting in the Capitol Wednesday between hardline conservatives and the appropriators. Appropriators effectively said that hardliners aren't going to get the red meat riders that they insisted on in the spending bills. That's the cuts or return to pre-COVID spending. Conservatives said that Speaker Johnson and the appropriators are giving up on the fight for conservative principles, which they promised the American people. One of the people that were named as getting hot in this Republican conference, Chip Roy, said that the 
Real Republicans will get crumbs in these spending bills. The hardliners advocated for shutting down the government as soon as March 1st. That's when the first tranche of the laddered CRNs. Now this puts Mike Johnson in the middle with three options. Another laddered CR, a compromise bill with Democrats, or a full-year CR. But those first two options, you know, siding with the Democrats where you have the 100 Swiss Republicans vote when they uh, suspend the rules, they'll bring the CR to the floor. It'll be the entirety of the Democrat side of the aisle and then like 100 Republicans, which will pass it. Or just a regular CR. Both of those options could put Mike Johnson on the chopping block as far as his speakership goes. So we're going to have to see what's going on. Because remember, you know, Representative Massey has some... uh, I guess, timeline-initiated cuts to where if we don't do certain things budgetary-wise by March 31st, you get that 1% across-the-board reduction in all government spending. And that was something that was put into a bill that snuck through the Senate across Joe Biden's desk and has been signed into law. There's going to be a lot of moving parts. You know, I hate that we always have to talk about Chip Roy and Tom Massey, but when it comes to getting back to the basis of this stuff and you look at Byron Donalds and Matt Gates and Corey Mills and Anna Luna and Bob Good, all of them like to work with them on this stuff because whether or not we like who they pick politically as the candidates they like to back, especially when it's not Donald Trump, which doesn't do anything for the party or his nomination process and eventual hopeful return to the White House, it does at time for the hardline conservatives who are supposed to be working for the American people kind of unified that delegation and get everybody working on the same page. One more before we jump in with Theo Wold. I saw Andy Biggs jumped on from his congressional office yesterday, and we'll be looking to have him back in the next two weeks as well. And he did a little bit of the Biggs report, his little podcast he's got going on there, and wanted to talk about Representative Turner and just exactly how he felt this whole situation shook out and potentially what could happen. Let's listen. About 11.30 in the morning, I guess, was an announcement that uh, that Mr. Turner made saying, hey, something really bad is, you know, we've got a national security threat we got to get to, and it's, it's imminent, blah, blah, blah. And he really put the, the fear of God into people, right? And I understand that. But the ranking member, Jim Hines, comes out and says, this is, this is, this is nothing new. It is nothing to panic about. But what did, what did Turner's statements do? They caused, uh, if you take a look at yesterday's uh, Dow Jones, you're going to see a spike down right after Turner makes that announcement. Yep. And then it takes the president, the speaker, uh, takes uh, the, the Senate uh, Intel Committee people, it takes other uh, Intel community people say, this is, this is fine, it's nothing to panic about. And then the market rebounds, right? Uh, how about internationally, what happened? Internationally, people, uh, other nations are like, what are they talking about? What is imminent? And that's where we'll leave it with, with Congressman Biggs. And, and here's the thing. It's like Republicans can't get out of their own way sometimes. We started off the week getting Scalise back, impeaching Mayorkas, telling Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden to stick their supplemental aid package and their border agreement bills up their ass. And, and you know, it's like Thursday morning. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be a pretty easy week just to get through right now. We, we're good. Like, look at where we're at right now. I would actually call this week a W. I might have actually said that on our Tuesday edition of the show this week. And Mike Turner comes out and sets DC up on its ear. And, I mean, you heard, listen, in in just 20 short minutes, the way Jackie Heinrich from Fox News, like, manically 
went through trying to get the breaking news out to how Mike Johnson and Andy Biggs have kind of been like, okay, we knew this was a thing, and this guy just used really scumbag tactics to try and sneak that supplemental package through. I can't say the Republicans end the week on a W. So we're going to leave it at that. We'll probably get some commentary from members of the House and Senate in the Sunday morning cable news circuit. I'll be watching that, heavily scrutinizing it as well. But we'll bring you the good clips. We're getting ready to jump in with Theo Wold right now. Before we do that, let's check in with one of our partners. I think it's time we had a conversation about a good night's sleep. Pillow King of Minnesota, Mike Lindell, and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family has been cranking out savings down at MyPillow for over 20 years. And for the first time in 20 years, they've changed the long-standing MyPillow and now have the MyPillow version 2.0. You enter promo code STAKE at checkout, you're going to get buy one, get one free. In addition to that, they've got great savings on all things like MyPillow dog beds, the Air Lindell version 1 and 2, My Slippers, and Giza Dream Everything. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. When you need a promo code STAKE here, you're going to get 25% off your order or 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyPillow.com forward slash steak for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash steak, or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative. 1-800-658-8045. All right, joining us next on the show today, this big Friday edition of the Steak for Records podcast, he's the former deputy assistant to the 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, Mr. Theo Wold. Welcome back to the program. Always great to sit down. Always good to be with you guys. The voice of the America First movement in the States. You know what? We really appreciate that, and uh, we're just going to keep grinding. But that seems to be something that you've been doing a lot of lately. Since your time in Washington, D.C., we learned on a couple different times you've been on the podcast. You relocated out to the great state of Idaho. You've been doing some amazing work there. And I want you to start off things today by catching our listenership up onto just what's going on in your state right now. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we're, we are a, a targeted state from Democrat activists, uh, the Open Society has about 12 full-time paid activists, uh, community organizers working in Southern Idaho. Um, so, you know, a lot of folks will say, well, right, you know, Idaho is a red state. Uh, it's definitely one that the Democrats want to make a battleground. Um, it's one that's on their, their top five targeted states for the next two cycles. And currently I'm working as the, uh, chairman state director for the Donald J. Trump 2024, uh, presidential campaign here in Idaho, uh, which is a real honor. Um, and it's, it's great to be back, uh, fully in the, the Trump, um, orbit, because as you know, I mean, there's, there's nothing like working on an initiative, a project or a campaign for the president. And I think the thing that your listeners should know this time, for anyone who's a fan of the president, this is an incredibly professionally run campaign. Uh, there's no drama. There's no controversy. Uh, there's incredible discipline from top to bottom. And I think the thing I think that's really cool is this is a very workmanlike approach to the process, to securing the president the nomination. And I think most of that kind of discipline and that sort of blue-collar lunch pail attitude is going to carry over to, to the general election as well. Do you expect the president to get out there for some campaign-related events in between now and let's just say when the primary is, and that's going to be on March second? On, on March second, yeah, it's a yeah. So Idaho uh, jumped out of the March fifteenth doldrums and is actually voting in front of uh, Super Tuesday this year, which is is pretty cool. I mean, because Idaho is usually a lagger even in some region in the Intermountain West, but we'll be sort of you know table setting for Utah and sure. Arizona this time around. 
Um, I don't know. We hope so. We, we hope he makes a, a visit out here. Uh, obviously, South Carolina is extremely important. They vote on February 24th. And then you've got, you know, enormous states voting on Super Tuesday, Texas, California this year. So there's a lot of places he's kind of got to ping pong around. I, it is a, a sort of a fact here in Idaho uh, that people will repeat because the leftist media has made this you know, sort of their cause to remind folks that Trump has not visited Idaho. Um, first Republican president since Coolidge not to visit the state. So we're hoping to get him out here. Um, if not before March 2nd, definitely, uh, you know, before November. So it'll be good for the state. And it's just, you know, planting a flag and letting people know that Idaho is not you know being taken for granted. No red state should be taken for granted. Um, you know, there are swing states that obviously are a higher priority, especially in a national campaign. But, you know, we've got to take care of our, our own backyard as well. Yeah, I mean, it's the bread and butter states, the ones that you necessarily don't have to worry about on Election Day that uh, build up that base, which allow those swing states to come into play and all those battlegrounds and bellwethers. But, you know, when you want to talk about the state of Idaho, it's almost never a doubt. But as you've learned since you moved there, there, there is a big push by the radical progressive left to kind of catch Republicans sleeping, as they do in a lot of states with uh, extensive rural areas to it, and, and kind of infuse themselves in all these local governments, which at some point yeah. will be materialize into a bigger more statewide level yeah i mean that's exactly right i mean just to give you you know your listeners a flavor of this so there was a very controversial school board race uh in boise in ada county which is the most populous obviously just like so many states um like with madison and milwaukee wisconsin or portland and oregon i mean boise is increasingly becoming the population center of idaho but also uh, sort of that vote sink that will determine statewide elections. So there was a, a controversial school board race here where the leftist progressives ran a 19-year-old high school kid uh, for school board, which most, if not many, of your listeners will know uh, because he was the, the gentleman who was arrested in, in New York at a climate protest. He was arrested again uh, in Seattle for a climate protest, arrested in uh, Davos, climate protests and then just a few days ago was arrested i believe in seattle for another climate protest uh which got the eye of a number of the national news outlets in australia uh focused on this this young man essentially saying you know look at these idiot kids uh who should be getting an education but instead they're out there uh locking themselves to you know uh offices uh blocking traffic on highways etc so this guy was bankrolled by national democrat donors uh, connected to Mayor uh, Mayor Pete, uh, Secretary Buttigieg. Um, he outfunded, outraised, out uh, campaigned any of the other sort of center moderate candidates for the school board. Hasn't really attended many meetings. Uh, he's essentially a paid activist. But that's the kind of thing, as you're, as you're noting, you take those small local offices, you build a platform, you become a vehicle and a lightning rod for national news attention, and then small dollar donations from places like California and Manhattan. And that's how you start to, to really flip a place like like Idaho. Seems to be the uh, textbook equation that Democrats are using. And, and when you talk about the people that they want to put out there, it's not like they're sending their, their moderates. They're, they're getting the most radical, no. progressive people in first and then kind of trickling down from there. Theo, I want to segue a little bit and talk about, you know, one of the things you probably, as the former deputy assistant to President Trump, when, when he was in office, uh, tracked what was going on in, in Congress, especially the House of Representatives. That's where legislation starts and makes its way up to eventually getting to his desk. 
you know, as, as it's been a struggle in the 118th session for House of Republicans with such a slim majority to pass any kind of real legislation that will be taken on by Chuck Schumer and eventually signed on by Joe Biden, they did pick up a big W this week with the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, we, we might never see a Senate trial, and Joe Biden might not even force his resignation. But when you talk about the job that he hasn't done and, and how much of the Constitution he circumvented, how much of the law he's broken, and how derelict he's been at his duty since taking office. And this guy comes from, like, funded from some of the darkest money in Democrat politics, in addition to the scandals he had when he was the director of CIS and had to step down during the Obama administration as well, how big of a win do you think this is for Republicans on actually following through on something they promised to the American people heading into an election season? Yeah, it's a win if we relentlessly stay on top of it. And, and what I mean by that is it's not enough just to do a victory lap that we finally got the votes um, after what a, a Congressman Gallagher and McClintock did uh, the first time through. Uh, and either voting in abstention or voting with the Democrats to to block the progression on an impeachment proceeding against Mayorkas. It, it's a victory if we stay on it and, and really make the Senate take this issue up instead of just dither with it and let time elapse. The thing that I think your listeners really got to know about the Mayorkas thing is there, there is a tendency on the right to portray him as inept and uh, in over his head. And as you noted, Mayorkas was at USCIS He's been involved with the left's control of the Department of Homeland Security for over a decade now, um, an extremely shrewd and calculating um, sort of politico. And he's at the heart of really what is a very competent attack by the Biden administration on, on two things, to destroy the immigration policy the Biden administration inherited from the Trump White House. Uh, and to neuter existing immigration law. And one thing I, I just want to go through real quickly, like where's the proof for that? Some of your, your listeners may say, think about, what, you know, turn back the dial and the chronology back to the winter of 2021 when there were all of these news articles, uh, you know, nightly news pieces being done with the alphabet soup of immigration groups on the left. You know, they have about 342 uh, quote, big players on the left in the immigration space. And all of them were furious that the Biden administration hadn't curtailed um, the Title 42 policies, that they weren't establishing uh, some kind of legislative push for, for DACA, for DREAMers. Uh, and their demands were essentially, number one, dramatically decrease funding for immigration detention. Uh, two, uh, to fund initiatives that would speed up the processing of illegal aliens or provide alternatives to detention. And then uh, three, to, to decrease funding for surveillance at the southern border. Uh, and then, you know, overall, decrease the size of ICE and the Border Patrol agent, uh, agencies. Uh, so when you look forward where we are now, where we are now, mission accomplished. They they did all of those things. So I think the mistake that we make is just to say, wow, this guy was incompetent. He was a buffoon. He should be impeached for dereliction of duty. No, no, no. He should have been impeached and we should carry the trial forward in the Senate because he was willfully undermining the law of, of the country. And, you know, and leave it to Republicans in the middle of this fight to push a border compromise uh, legislative effort in the Senate that essentially, I think at the end of the day, anyone who read the bill would tell you um, the, the overall effect of the, the Senate bill uh, was to regularize and streamline illegal immigration. Yep. Make it something that the average American no longer sees on the nightly news because it's got a legal process for something that is patently unlawful. And, and you know, when you talk about 
you know, formalizing and legalizing the immigration, uh, what's going on right now, the illegality of it, it, it starts and ends with them walking across the U.S. southern border, uh, getting through a notice to appear and release, essentially catching a release process to where, you know, there's no enforcement done. And once they're in the country, there's essentially no way that they're ever being removed. A lot of them, you know, immediately start uh, working. They have the social security numbers. They, um, air quoting now, contribute to society. Others will immediately try to have children. Once you have a child that's born in the United States, it's almost impossible outside of extreme measures to remove the family from the country as well. And, And, you know, it just goes to show you that, you know, for all of the ways that Alejandro Mayorkas tried to break down uh, CIS when he was working there, not just with his scandals involving like play for pay visas, he went and looked at the legal permanent residentship. And that's for our listenership who don't know what that means. Green card holders making the rules for them to remain in the country and, and not move that process forward to become American citizens just so much easier. They could live in Mexico or Canada. Yep. They could just essentially stay here forever and, and not really follow through on a lot of the things they were given when they were awarded amnesty from Ronald Reagan. And, you know, for the amount of people that we've let in over the course of the last three and a half years now, which is well over 10 million, I'll give you the low bar number there, including Godaways. Yeah. Every single major figurehead in the regime and in Congress right now, you can't catch them on TV when they ask about the border. Number one, they blame Congress. And number two, they talk about having to deal with the people who are already here. It's just a dog whistle for amnesty. And it's going to be the the hill that Democrats try to die on as part of the last ditch legislation in Joe Biden's government. Yeah, I think I think that's essentially it, that's exactly correct. And I think the, the other aspect of this that's that's lurking in the shadows, as you point out, is um, you know, there's been this this enormous effort to uh, to degrade citizenship, yep. right? Overall American citizenship. So there's there's just no distinguishing between a green card holder or an illegal alien and the privileges and rights belonging to a citizen. At the same time, um, as I said, look, leave it to Republicans to allow this issue to be flipped on its head and Democrats to take the the momentum here. Or, or seemingly, according to the national press, take the momentum and in the special election results out of New York, they want to make that all about, you know, that 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 it's Congress's fault. It's the Republican members of Congress who didn't come forward with a border bill. And and really, all of that is to obscure for the average American citizen that the, the authorities already exist for the Biden administration to secure the border. The authorities already exist for criminal aliens to be removed from the country to shut down this pipeline of of illegal immigration into our communities. And as I said earlier, when you go back through and you look at those news articles in the fall of 2021, the immigration groups made it clear what we want is not just for you to take down the Trump administration's uh, border policies. We want to make sure that it can never be repeated again. And so we want you to regularize and streamline illegal immigration. So the CBP, uh, one app, the in-country processing centers in the Northern Triangle, all of those are designed to ex- expedite the flow of illegal entries into the country for the very reason you named, so that ultimately the Democrat position on all of this has never changed. And Dick Durbin gave it away just the other day when he said, look, in the middle of this ongoing negotiation of a supposedly a tough-on-the-border legislative process, I'm going to introduce an amnesty for DACA. Waiting in the wings, in the shadows of all of this, is to provide citizenship for the people who were here. And as you said, the 11, let's say, you know, 
conservative estimate, 10 and a half, but we know it's higher than that, probably 13 to 14 million who have entered under Joe Biden. Sure. That's the gig. And they want to hide it from, from the American people that that's actually what's going on here. And the they here, sadly, includes a lot of establishment um, elite Republicans who also want to see uh, illegal immigration taken out of the, the national debate. Uh, and, and that's why I say they want to regularize it and streamline it. Yeah, it's wild the way to see this battle going down. I, I agree with you. Republicans can't take their foot off the gas in regards to keeping the pressure on this. I think Mike Johnson had a pretty solid week, you know, uh, shutting down the foreign aid supplemental package, I thought was a huge, you know, he kind of pulled the UNO reverse card for, you know, they seven months ago, they sent Chuck Schumer, HR1, the energy pack, and then HR2, the border security bill. And Chuck Schumer said that, yeah, it's fine. He threw him right in the garbage. And Mike Johnson's like, oh, would you look over there in the corner of my office? It seems like I have a garbage can too. Here's your Ukraine foreign supplemental aid package. And it's going to sit there until you guys decide to take up border security. Yeah. In addition to the Mayorkas impeachment, but now we're getting back into that gray area where it seems like they'll go on the news and, and talk a good spiel about it. Last thing I want to touch with you on, Theo, but Republicans just can't get ahead of Section 02 FISA reform. Let's talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I think, um, you know, the last 48 hours in Washington are very revealing of how this always works, right? Suddenly, all the news headlines yesterday on CBS, on NBC, on the Drudge Report were um, – you know, the chair of the House Intel Committee and the ranking member have, you know, really hot off the presses, uh, intel that they have shared with all members of Congress, all members, including those not on the select committees on intelligence, uh, that indicates the Russians may have new capacities or new weapons that are potentially destabilizing to American national security interests. And, you know, of course, the, the regime uh, puppets in the media run with this storyline. Everyone's in a tizzy. D.C. Is, is totally in a frenzy. You get all these anonymous sources, largely either from members themselves or their staffs indicating like, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting stuff. This Intel report it's not exactly new. But if you read between the lines and you've been following along, why now? Why did this happen now? Why all of a sudden is it, well, it's kind of old, but it's kind of new, but everyone got access to it this week. Why was that intel leaked now? Well, you know, it helped grease the skids for the Ukraine funding. Yep. And then additionally, it's happening right as Pfizer reform gets taken up so that the, the deep state intel bros in Congress can say, see, I told you, we, we need these authorities inclusive of the ability to surveil, investigate, and prosecute American citizens. We need them. Because, uh, but for this, we wouldn't know about this Russian uh, capacity, or we wouldn't know about what Hamas is planning. Never you mind that we're letting, you know, known Hamas sleeper cell agents stay in the country under expanded immigration authorities that the Biden White House is exercising. But we need FISA renewed. And this is the game they played, uh, you know, four years ago. It's what they played four years before that. So this is, this is the, you know, the cycle that the intel community in the country uh, uses and sadly a lot of our members of congress uh, fall for it every time do you see what the amount of leadership that's leaving congress obviously speaker mccarthy you start and end with him but you see like ken buck many of the committee chairs who you know even on the republican side they've been in the game for a long time uh, you, you know Kay granger is leaving congress mitt romney on the senate side yeah. uh, you've had a couple of senators you know either announce their retirement aren't running for re-election or unfortunately have passed away over the course of this session of congress it seems like the last man standing 
but one that's definitely not able to kind of defend himself in the context that he used to, let's just say a decade ago, is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. And do you feel like at some point over the course of the next year or maybe hopefully start of the next Trump administration, this pushback from everyone, Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, you know, uh, you've got uh, Mike Lee and, and all these senators, J.D. Vance, kind of just saying like his leadership is, is not for the American people right now. This pushback enough to either have him you know, step down from his leadership position or maybe even get out of Congress and leave the Senate in its entirety? Yeah, so I, I think, um, you know, the minority leader has a special genius for uh, for how to make Washington work and to put that in square, scare quotes, right? Because it doesn't actually work. It does nothing. But that's one of the ways that he's maintained his control and power of the chamber. Um I, the one caution I give, because I, I agree largely with what you just outlined, the one caution I give is that the, the, the minority leader isn't unique. He belongs to a species or a tribe of, of members of the Republican elite in D.C. So you know, McConnell may step down, but he'll be replaced by someone who largely thinks like him and will see the floor and open debate and the process of amendment the same way. So what I think is very interesting about the names you, you kind of just rattled off is they are all products of contested primaries. Ted Cruz was not the preferred candidate of the Republican establishment in te Texas. Correct. Mike Lee was not the preferred candidate of the, the establishment in, in Utah. Um, you know, Eric Schmidt was not the preferred candidate of the establishment in Missouri. Uh, you, you go through the new guard that has you know, fought tooth and nail to win in Republican primaries, it, largely in red states, and now is saying, look, um, you know, Rand Paul, again, also not the preferred candidate of the Republican establishment in Kentucky. Um, all of these guys have brought new energy, new focus to the party, whether it's on foreign policy, whether it's on immigration or something so simple as, you know what, we should open this up for debate. We should have an amendment process and there should actual, you know, be actual contention of ideas on the Senate floor. I, I think the, the tide has turned. I think the tide turned in the last month because say what you will about senator langford's naivete in participating in the immigration negotiation with chuck schumer i think senator rubio hit that point several times based on his own experiences in 2013 sure it's not worth doing the, the democrats will pull the rug from underneath you every time say what you will about that and, and give him the most charitable interpretation i think a lot of the press following the blow up of that supposed bipartisan deal uh, indicated that the minority leader essentially made Senator Langford walk the plank on that one. And and that did not sit well with anyone, including some of those those folks who have essentially been um, easy votes for the minority leader over the last two decades. So I, I think uh, the tide has changed. And, and look, um, you know, not to, to blow empty smoke Senator Cruz's way or Senator Lee or Senator Scott, but they've just got better ideas I mean, the folks who have been fighting with McConnell for years and years at this point now, they've got better ideas. They have a better vision for how the chamber should work. And they're more interested in in this process, opening the process, because they know that will benefit the American people. So I think it's one of those things where the good guys are actually going to win this time. It depends, as I said, on what happens next when that clone of McConnell steps forward. What is going to be the movement's response to that, and how are we going to organize against uh, around someone who can actually provide an alternative? It's going to be interesting to see. I mean, if you told me that the Republican House of Representatives would look like this dumpster fire that it is, although I cheer for them, and, and I do like a lot of the ones who are, you know, maybe 
three sessions of less who who really appreciate and are out there on the road with Donald Trump. And then the freshman class, you can't say enough about them, whether it's Corey Mills, Mike Collins, Wesley Hunt. Uh, they, they've just got a superstar freshman class in there. Eli Crane, of course, that we've tracked for the last several years and will hopefully be tracking for many years to come. Much like we will be doing with you, Theo, we're going to live link your spot on the Claremont Institute in our show description today. You are a Washington fellow with the institution. We always want our listenership to be able to see all the great stuff you've going on. If you want to tell us where we could get involved in Idaho, if you've got a website for it, and then your social medias, we'll live link those as well. Yeah, hey, I would just encourage all of your listeners to to visit the um, the, the Trump 2024 campaign website. There's opportunities to uh, to volunteer and Look, it's it's difficult work, but we need all hands on deck. The president needs a strong showing in in South Carolina, and then some of these early uh, early primary states, to caucus states to follow, like Idaho. So, um, there's a program there that allows you to make calls on behalf of the campaign, or to do door knocking, whatever it may be, or if you're in that region, to get out there into South Carolina. So, check that out, and then uh, on social media, on that real Theo Wold on 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 X and on Instagram. So, uh, as always, thanks for having me on, man. No, it's great to be with you. always a pleasure on our end, and we'll be looking to catch up with you soon, if not right before the Idaho primary on March 2nd, then definitely after when we're in the midst of general election season. This is the former deputy assistant to President Trump, who's still doing a whole hell of a lot of work for him out in the great state of Idaho now. Theo Wald, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Thanks to Bidenomics, a 30-year mortgage rate has hit a 22-year high, the highest in over 22 years, average mortgage payments now a brutal $3,322 a month. When I was president, the average monthly mortgage payment was $1,700 a month, nearly 50% less than what you're doing right now. You had a savings with me of $19,000 a year. That's a lot. And this is an affordability crisis. Remember, under crooked Joe Biden, credit card debt is the highest in history. Never been higher. That's a tragic number. Over $1 trillion for the first time ever. It's never been even close to that. 62% of Americans now report living paycheck to paycheck. Under President Trump, me, Americans liberated <laughs> themselves from debt by paying off roughly $150 billion from their credit cards. The only major decline in decades, the first time in decades that it was happening. And President Trump delivered remarks in North Charleston, South Carolina this week. We've got all the highlights of the Save Our Republic rally as he was getting those South Carolinians out to commit to vote in the upcoming primary on February 24th. I saw some poll numbers that were out today. Before we get into a little bit of the meat and potatoes of them later, pertinent to the state of South Carolina and all things Palmetto-related, from Trafalgar, Friday, Donald Trump 63, Nikki Haley 34. I, I just don't understand what this lady is doing sticking in this Republican primary other than election interference. You know, the first thing that she does every time she gets on the news is talk about how well she did in some of those states, which she lost and even came in third in some instances, and then parlays right into that, that Donald Trump's going to have these lawfares waged against him and it's going to be a major distraction for Americans. She also alludes to the fact often that people aren't going to vote for him if he's convicted in any of these sham trials and you know whether it's over the bench of Noah's favorite transformer, Judge Angoron, um, Fat Alvin Bragg, 
or God forbid, Fannie Willis, who's having a day. We'll have to see how these cases hold up or if they're even held together at this point. There was a lot of economy-driven language into this speaking event that Donald Trump did in North Charleston, South Carolina. And listen, I don't want to take credit for it because Noah's the one that said it, even though he's not here today. The first time you've ever heard the word Maganomics was on the Steak for Breakfast podcast. We've got to start writing this stuff down. But I remember one episode I was driving the Bidenomics home. There was a brief silence. And then Noah's like, why don't you just give us the Maganomics? Well, it's made it to the main stage and is now part of the campaign's rhetoric. Let's hear the 45th president as he talks about the smoldering remains of Joe Biden's economy. That's what's up. Let's compare the smoldering records of Bidenomics. How about that name, Bidenomics? With the incredible success we had just three years ago under President Trump on Maganomics. You ever hear that term? I just heard it. I just heard it. And I like it. I said, let's use it, everyone. Let's use it in South Carolina. Whether it was Chris or Boris, I know La Civita's son listens to the show. Thank you. And I, I hope to see Maganomics on some of those Trump rally signs. I will be asking some of our listeners who frequently make it out to the Trump rallies to get us one, and it will be then appearing behind me here in the podcast studio. So very awesome to hear, and it's such a countermeasure to Bidenomics. Maganomics is just, you knew this was the greatest economy in the history of our republic, not just the stocks, but the low inflation, the amount of money Americans were saving, the amount of debt that individual families was paying off, the affordability of things like houses and cars. I'm not even getting into eggs and milk and diapers and all that stuff. Life was just better under Trump. And when you look at, the, man, these rising inflation rates, I'm going to warn you, I've talked to a lot of financial experts and people who are dialed into the economy over the course of the last two weeks. They've announced a recession in several countries in Europe, most recently the UK yesterday. That shit is coming here. I don't care how many jobs Joe Biden lies and says he created. I don't care how green the stock market is at the end of the day and how much that's padding our 401ks. We're all going to need it eventually because the price of things are about to go up another quarter of what they are now. Heading into the spring and then the summer months, it's going to be awful. If Russia and the Middle East nations who produce a lot of the gasoline that's used around the world too decide to continue to stem the flow of output, disastrous. I mean, Donald Trump could be walking into a legitimate recession here in the United States I mean, I know we're in like the potholed one right now where it's like up and down, up and down, but the cost of living is just getting ridiculous. And I don't know how much more this Americans could take. Hopefully it's enough to get everybody out to the ballot boxes in November and vote for Donald Trump. He would segue quickly from Joe Biden to Nikki Haley, who he took turns destroying over the course of this rally. I mean, it isn't her home state, and he's essentially beating her by 40 points right now as we're still a week away from the South Carolina primary. But he reminded everybody of what she has and then put the notion of other things that a lot of other commentators like to pry it to bed. Let's hear this one first, talking about Nikki Haley's Trump derangement syndrome. 
She gave land away to China, but most importantly, I'm beating Biden in almost every poll by a lot, where she loses to Biden in virtually every poll. And her numbers, by the way, are tanking. Her numbers are going down. As she gets angrier, crazier, and <laughs> suffers deeper, deeper scars from Trump derangement syndrome. She's got a, a terminal case. <laughs> terminal case. Trump derangement syndrome. Not a nice thing. There are many people afflicted with it. Most of them are gone. On the amnesty bill, Nikki sided with crooked Joe Biden. I sided with the American people. She sided with Biden. She certainly did. You know, nobody loves amnesty more than Nikki Haley does. And if you don't think she's looking to at least start with DACA and then do the, well, we have to deal with the people here. That's exactly the way she thinks because she's bought and sold by big tech, the military industrial complex, social media industrial complex, and probably a whole bunch of other ones too. I mean, listen, she's a Democrat running against Donald Trump essentially at this point. I call her Hillary 2.0. She says a lot of Hillary's talking points, you know, it's like every single person that has challenged Donald Trump from Joe Biden, who sits in the Oval Office right now, to people like Nikki Haley on the road, they talk about Donald Trump like he wasn't already the president for a term. They try to scare people into what the other side of the election would look like when America's already seen it. And between Joe Biden's three and a half miserable years in office and this bullshit fake primary in the multiverse that all of these candidates ran against Donald Trump before they decided to get out, Want everybody to just forget about the four years that he was in office and all the accomplishments he had. So when it comes to unloyal, distrustful, piece of shit snakes like Nikki Haley, Donald Trump wants to make one thing abundantly clear when it comes to her working in the next administration. From tricky Nikki, tricky Nikki. <laughs> he didn't know I interposed. And they make a big deal out of it. I said, no, no, I think they both stink. They have something in common. They both stink. And remember this. When I make a statement like that about Nikki, that means she will never be running for vice president. She will never be running for vice president. Remember that. Remember that. Every single person that wants to say, oh, yeah, this is, this is the media and this is the RNC. Well, we don't have to worry about the RNC anymore because now it's going to be uh, Watley and Laura Trump and Chris Lasavita running the show, but you know they would talk about every single entity under the sun pushing her into Donald Trump's VP ship, and that's just never going to happen. We knew it from day one. It was fake news. We said it was fake news from day one. For all these people that wanted to run with that narrative, well, now you look like a complete moron. Jumping right back into what happened with Joe Biden and the results from his special counsel report, where. It was determined that he was mentally unfit to stand trial, therefore wouldn't be charged in the case. Donald Trump had some questions when it came to him being the chief executive of the United States. Let's hear it. Think of it. Think of what happened. They just came out with a report. They said he's not competent enough to defend himself in court, but he's competent enough to be president of the United States. How does that work? How does that work? But me, I got to go through a trial. And I had a thing called the Presidential Records Act. I did absolutely nothing wrong. But we, I don't, I don't know, I don't like, I wouldn't have liked that, that verdict. You can not defend yourself in court because you're grossly incompetent. You don't memory, you don't have any memory. You're a disaster. But you can be president of the United States. 
I don't want a president that's not allowed to go in and at least talk and defend himself. So they're protecting him. They're actually protecting him, but they're not protecting our country. Our country's in big trouble. You know, almost more importantly than that binder, which essentially ties everybody from the Obama administration, including the former president, to spying and committing crimes against Donald Trump, his campaign, his transition, and during his first term in office, is that five hours of interview footage of Joe Biden during his special counsel depositions. And there's a lot of rumors or people kind of hypothesizing online right now saying that that might be the carrot that they dangle out in front of him to eventually step down at some point, at least before August, uh, to be able to get another candidate in there. And it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, that tape does exist. And I know House Republicans want full disclosure on the matter. They want everything released to the American public. I don't know if they're necessarily going to be able to, in regards to specific classified material that was discussed, but when it comes to asking some of the dated questions that apparently Joe Biden couldn't answer, and ones that didn't involve his son, because according to Robert Hur's office and the Department of Justice, that question was never asked. Joe Biden wanted to make it an issue to kind of garner sympathy from the American public. Interesting to see how, if they ever get on a debate stage together, man, Donald Trump's going to absolutely shred him. Bidenomics versus Maganomics. Most secure border versus the border now. Less crime versus this crime. No world wars versus Afghanistan and two wars going on on the planet right now, in the very least. I mean, you name it. And then fit and mentally unfit. Guys, wherever you're listening to the podcast today, please make sure you're subscribed to Steak for Breakfast. Hit that follow button, hit subscribe, and make sure we're downloading to your electronic devices. In addition, check us out on social media. Twitter, get our true social, and Instagram is where you'll find our accounts. Find them, follow them, hit the notification bell. I promise you won't regret it. So fit to serve can mean a lot of different things. We just heard Donald Trump talk in the context of mentally, but there's also physically. And one of the things I know really bugs Donald Trump sometimes is when they make those watered over pictures of his face that makes him look older. And when they misshape his body to make him look dumpy, he doesn't like it. And the best part about him, I think is being able to allow him to express himself on how he feels about that stuff. When it comes off the cuff and on the campaign trail, it's some of the best Donald Trump you'll ever hear in your life. And he talked about it. One of the pictures where he was apparently playing golf and they made like, they photoshopped his belly a little bit bigger and he went right into talking about how shitty Joe Biden is at golf. Let's hear it. I play golf. I played very nice. Did you see the picture of me, the horrible picture with the stomach after here? That was. <laughs> so what I do is I'm putting up today a picture of me actually, what I actually look like hitting a ball, smashing the freaking ball. And you'll see quite, I wouldn't say slim. I wouldn't say slim, but not bad. <laughs> but the ball does go far. I would say it goes about nine times further. Then Biden can hit it nine times. Big if true. He said he's a six handicap. That may be his biggest light. Do you ever notice? Pilots come in and he said he flew planes. Truckers <laughs> came in, he says he 
Military coverage, he says, I was in the military. All, they're all lies. His biggest lie is that he's a 6.2 handicap. I've seen him swing. He's like this. That's not. I know a lot about golf. That's not a 6.2. And it wasn't a 6.2 30 years ago. That's a bigger lie than the fact that he flies and he drives <laughs> trucks. That guy is something, I'll tell you. He was on absolute fire during this rally. His last one last weekend was a 10 out of 10. This was very close. This was in the neighborhood of nines. And you know how we are with our Trump rally. It's almost like Portnoy with pizza. You know, there's people who are saying that these things are high eights and nines and even tens. And, you know, here comes Portnoy 7.9. It's good pie. I could tell you straight up when it's a good rally. But the there is something right now about the state of South Carolina, whether it was Donald Trump walking out on the field at halftime of the Palmetto Bowl to that rally last week, the energy for him. I know a lot of these polls are saying that he's beaten Nikki by like 40-ish, and a lot of them, I think it's going to be more. I really do. And, and it's not me fanboying. It's just seeing that there is an energy level in South Carolina right now for Donald Trump like we haven't seen in other places. I mean, everybody gets hyped for him. But it's like a lot of his newest and freshest material, his new shittages on everybody are coming out in South Carolina, like, naturally. And, you know, when he feels most comfortable is when he's getting that energy from the audience. And, you know, I think sometimes a lot of it is that people are in awe that they're at a Trump rally and they might not be as interactive. But there's, like, a real love for this guy in the state of South Carolina that I've noticed ever since he did that rally back last year. And, you know, 75-plus thousand people came out in triple-digit heat and waited all day for him to speak for two hours. It was just amazing in a, in a town where less than 4,000 people live. So I think Nikki Haley's in for a real rude awakening next week. We're going to have to check it out and keep following of it. You know, one of the things he, it's true, and where he hit Joe Biden on the domestic stuff and his mental and physical capabilities, he also wanted to hit him on foreign policy. Joe Biden's blunders and his inviting rhetoric on what happened at the start of the Ukraine conflict, saying, you know, the minor incursion wouldn't be looked at as something as a full-blown war. He got what he wanted. And Donald Trump understands that. And although he still feels like he can bring this conflict to a peaceful resolution and very quick, at this point, there's still nine months until Donald Trump can win back the presidency. So he touched on the Ukraine conflict a little bit. Let's hear it. But I got along good with him, but he doesn't want to have me. He wants to have Biden because he's going to be given everything he wants, including Ukraine. That's a gift. He's got a gift. He's going to have his dream of getting Ukraine because of Biden. The whole thing is just crazy. Biden has given him the only president in the last five that hasn't given Russia anything is a president known as Donald J. Trump. True story. You know that. I don't have to go over the list. <laughs> but Biden, Biden is going to give him Ukraine the way it's looking to me. It's terrible. So Putin came out and he said, I'd much rather have Biden be president. And I said, well, that's insulting. And then I said, wait a minute, that's actually a very good thing. I think I'll mention it tonight at the speech in front of the people of South Carolina. The war would 
That's a war. And it's, you know, I think everyone agrees. A lot of Democrats agree. They say, well, I agree that that would never happen. But that's a war that never would have happened if I was president. Can't make that stuff up. It's absolutely factual. You know, there was a, for as much as nobody liked it. I mean, America First didn't like it. We, we, we liked, like, the chadisms between them, the bro handshakes. And, you know, that one time that they were at the G20 and Putin walked past, like, two dozen world leaders to walk up to Donald Trump, who was all the way towards the end of the line to shake his hand and shake Melania's hand. We, we, the exchange of the soccer ball. We like that stuff between and when they met for the first time and Donald Trump did the underhanded handshake, pulled Putin in and shook the shit out of him. That is something that has never happened to Vladimir Putin ever. And it was the exchange of like the alpha waves, which, led them to have a functional relationship and kept him at bay. And when Joe Biden came in, everybody knows that he brought his entire cabinet and appointee and agency heads with him from the Obama administration, all of the people who were like Russian restart and let's kiss their ass and let's draw red lines in the sand. And everybody knows the only thing you do with an Obama or Biden line in the sand is trample right the fuck over it and not get any consequences for it. That's just the way it is. And, you know, we're, as a nation, reaping the fruit of that. It looks equally as bad as the Afghanistan withdrawal because the only thing that we've got going on in Ukraine right now is our long-range weaponry continuing to take pot shots at the second biggest nuclear superpower on the planet. Nothing good ever comes from that. So I, I think Vladimir Putin understands that there is a very good potentiality for there to be a foreign policy change, maybe back to a little bit of normalcy in a little over nine months from now. But in the meantime, he's going to make sure he gets his. I, I mean, it, I saw some stuff over there the course of the week. Russians continue to advance. They've got like Bakhmut 2.0 going on right there. And Colonel McGregor said he'll... Probably be satisfied once he gets Odessa. So, who knows? But that seems like the trajectory that we're on right now. Going to wrap it up. I've got not the entire outro, but a couple good parts of it. And, you know, when you hear the end of a Trump rally, I don't care if it's the first time or the 500th time. If you are really in to get this country back on the right track, when that music hits right before he segues from all the bad things going on in this country right now to the positive things. If there's not an emotional reaction out of you, you're not doing enough. Whether it's with your ground game, with your input on stuff, or even emotionally. If you don't get a physical response from that segue of a Trump speech and the way that they add and change different things depending on what state or city they're in or what's going on in this country right now. It's really some of the best speech writing, I think, in modern politics. Let's jump right into this. We are one movement, one people, one family, and one glorious nation under God. We are the greatest movement in the history of our country. We are MAGA. Make America great again. Like those patriots before us, we will not bend, we will not break, 
We will not yield. We will never give in. We will never give up. We will never, ever, ever back down. With your support, we will go on to victory, the likes of which no one has ever seen before. We will evict Joe Biden from the White House. And we will take back our country on Election Day 2024. Crooked Joe Biden will be gone. The great silent majority is rising like never before. And under our leadership, the forgotten man and woman will be forgotten no longer. You got to believe the man when he says it. And, and when he gets into that 2024 is our final battle. Leave your house. At some point in the near future, visit any major city in the United States right now. If you live in the north or the south, visit any border town in this country right now. Airports, police stations, schools, the workplace, everything's falling apart. And to say I'm going to wait for the next round... Or this has been going on for almost eight years now. I can't take it anymore. You just got to be able to push yourself that much further. I think that's an excellent point to end our week as far as the news goes. But lucky for us, we've got a very special guest coming in to wrap up our second all-new edition of the podcast. Candidate Dan Fry who's running in Nebraska's 2nd Congressional District, looking to go up to Capitol Hill next year, is trying to primary America last rhino, Don Bacon. So as we're getting ready to jump in with him for the very first time, let's check in one last time with one of our partners. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Battleborn Coffee Roasters. They're law enforcement, family-owned, and they produce some of the best available specialty-grade coffee. That means all those beans have gone through an extensive process to remove all defects. Battleborn researches all their sources, farms, and milling stations to make sure you're not getting any pesticides or chemical fertilizers. Sit back and have a cup of their borderline Mexico Chiapas blend while you're out sitting on an X or sitting in the office. High-quality coffee from high-quality people. Use promo code STEAK for 20% off your first order. Make sure you go check them out at battleborn.com. Coffee. All right, joining us next on the show today, the second of two big, all-new Steak for Breakfast podcast. He's the candidate that's running to make Nebraska's second congressional district great again. Sitting down for the first time, very excited to be chatting with Mr. Dan Fry. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, nobody on this program is a fan of Dan Bacon by any means. Um, he is Mr. America Last Legislation, Mr. Likes to Fund Forever Wars, and argue with Anon accounts on the internet. And we don't really take his job seriously because he doesn't take his job that he's supposed to be doing for the American people seriously. So when we heard from some of our great friends, Mr. Beard Vet himself, that you were getting in this race and making some noise out there in Nebraska, getting some huge local endorsements, I said, you want to know what? It's long overdue. We got to get this guy on the show. Here you are. But before we get into any of your campaign-related stuff, I want to take it one step back and where you're at in Nebraska right now, what really compelled you to want to get into this race and feel like you can primary Mr. Don Bacon? Well, it's it's really everything you just mentioned. Uh, you know, Don Bacon runs as a conservative, but he finds the uh, majority, we find the majority of his time, he's jumping over the aisle and trying to create legislation with the Democrats. I mean, Don's been wrong on so many things. He was wrong on DACA. He was wrong on the $1.3 trillion infrastructure bill that only 13 Republicans jumped on board of the Democrats on. Correct. 
He's certainly been wrong on, on the border. Um, and, and I don't know if, if you saw it, but in the most recent speaker battle where the Republicans were struggling to get a speaker, um, Don couldn't find his his uh, conservative credentials to vote for Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan's one of the rock stars of the party, one of the rock stars of the conservative movement. And Don Bacon couldn't vote for him. And uh, when, when that vote finally, when, when his when his uh, speak, when they found somebody else, uh, Don had indicated and ran in front of a camera and said, you know, he's willing to work with the Democrats to uh, to find a speaker that everybody could agree on. Um, that, that that's a dangerous man to have when you've got such a razor, a razor thin majority in, in the, uh, in the house. Now, as you saw some of this stuff that you just mentioned play out, uh, was it a decision that you made with your family? Was there people locally who said, you want to know what you can get in this race and make some noise? What was it that went into that final decision that said, I- I'm absolutely positively going to do this and, and we're going to make a big difference here? Well, this isn't our first rodeo. We, we, we ran, 10 years ago against a very similar congressman that had been in, in the uh, seat for 16 years, eight terms, and started to, t- to uh, take his marching orders from the likes of John Boehner and, and uh, Paul Ryan, and really got disengaged with his constituents. And Don Bacon's in the exact same place today. So, you know, th- there there had been calls to do this in the, uh, in, in the last election cycle. We, we chose not to for, for personal reasons, but this election cycle, phones started to ring. And at the end of the day, this is really about what kind of government, what kind of what kind of world are we going to leave for those that are coming behind us? Because we what we're doing right now in D.C. is absolutely not sustainable. So if you're going to run as a conservative in a red state, when you get to D.C., legislate like a conservative. What is it about going to Washington, D.C.? Is it the lobby groups? Is it? The, the mob mentality up there? Is it pressure from the other side of the aisle? And it seems how they're always a little bit more in steps than Republicans have historically been for the past couple of decades. That has people who run as strong conservatives in a ruby red state like Nebraska and then go up on, on Capitol Hill and it's like, oh, continuing resolution, I'll just sign off on that. I don't want people to tell me I don't support the military. Oh, DACA, yeah, we can give amnesty to those people. That won't open up the door to anything else. Oh, here comes another supplemental aid package. You know, we're never going to get anything done on the U.S. southern border, so let's just make sure we keep funding Ukraine and, and keep those you know, munitions and, and ammo heading over there. What is it that has these people changed? How has the local GOPs been receptive to you know, Don Bacon's behavior up on Capitol Hill for the last at least two sessions now? Well, it, it's, it's interesting that you ask about the local GOP, but, but first, to answer your question, first of all, when, when you look at those that go to D.C., it quickly becomes about how do I get reelected? And it's about time we start sending individuals. And, and I've, I've got to be honest with you. I don't long to go to, to, to D.C. Being a congressman, that that title doesn't mean much to me. I, I the, the title that I enjoy the most is, is a husband, a father, and a grandfather. Love it. And I, I'm going to go to D.C. because there's a job that needs to be done and I'm willing to do it. But we're sending individuals that go to D.C. and quickly become part of the swamp. And, and their whole objective is, what, it, what do I need to do to get reelected? What I want to do is go to D.C. and and work with individuals that are like-minded, that are more concerned about the next generation than their next election cycle. So make no mistake about it. I, I, I have no intentions to make a career of this. But when you when you talk about what do the lo- what does the local party have to say about this? It was very interesting because the state GOP, the state Nebraska Republican Party. They endorsed my candidacy for this seat 
and did not the the incumbent Don Bacon did not get the endorsement of his own party at the state level. Wow. So wow. I'm telling you, there this this is turning into more of a movement than it is a campaign. And it's a movement because people are one of two emotions. They're either scared and concerned about the future of this country and the direction that it's headed, or they're angry. And both of those emotions elicit a response on election day. Hey, speaking of those emotions that are going to be driving people to the ballot box come the primary season and then down in November, what are some of the biggest things that you're talking to your constituents about, future constituents about, you know, getting done for them once you get up to Capitol Hill next year? I mean, obviously, border security and the economy are one, two, but every state has its own little individual things that, you know, we like to touch on with these candidates and get out there to our national listenership so they'll be more inclined to contribute to your campaign. So what's really going on in Nebraska right now? Well, you, you are right. Nebraska, Nebraska, I don't think, is any different than any other state at this point in time. And the, the number one and two issues, you're exactly right. It's border and, it, and it's the spending and the economy. I, I, with the border right now, the last time I ran, I ran because we were seeing unprecedented numbers of illegals coming across the border. Today, we have got an all-out border invasion. I never thought I'd see the day, and this is what I'm hearing from, from the people of Nebraska, never thought they'd see the day where the federal government was suing a state because they were protecting the border and doing what the federal government should have been doing. Then the other issue, and again, it's it's a one and two, and it's not necessarily in this specific order, is the economy. We've got people right now that are just trying to make it pay, paycheck to paycheck, the average American family. And heaven forbid, if they have to go grocery shopping and fill up their tank in the same day with gas, because We've got the interest rates and the inflation rates at levels that we haven't seen since the Carter administration. So that's got to be resolved. And you, you also spoke earlier about this whole idea of these continuing resolutions where these individuals go up to D.C. and they disregard their, their primary job and their responsibility. The responsibility of the House, the primary responsibility is to create a budget that serves the needs of the American people. So I ask you, where were your congressmen in August? They weren't in D.C. Nope. They were not in D.C. They had a deadline coming the first week or two of September. Every one of them knew it when they left for recess for vacation in the month of August. They came back full well knowing that they were not going to meet that deadline. So we've got a CR. That's them kicking the can down the road of their most significant responsibility for the American people. They've done it not once, not twice. We're on the third CR. I'm telling you right now, when I go to D.C., I will never sign a CR. We're either going to get the job done or you're going to stay in D.C. until it's done. This is the work that the American people expect out of their Congress. Well, you make some excellent points. You want to talk about the the congressmen and women who have only been up there for a very short amount of time. I'm talking two, three terms, uh, ones that come to mind. They were on the show today. Uh, Josh Burkeen from Oklahoma, obviously Ben Klein, who's out in Virginia. You know, there's a there's a couple in the freshman class who are absolutely fantastic. Corey Mills, Anna Paulina Luna, obviously Matt Gates is a great guest on the show here, too. And they all kind of say the same thing. They had a mandate when they went to Washington, D.C., and even though the majority hasn't worked in their favor legislatively for a lot of things, uh, when it comes to, to simple, you know, slam dunks, don't sign the CR, they don't do it. But well, Stop signing the dog on CRs. Yeah, and then, you know, like they said, but the other side of that coin is there's always 100 or some odd Republicans who automatically vote for the Democrats because the day before the CR is up, you get people like Don Bacon going out on CNN and MSNBC, Ken Buck, 
uh, Dan Crenshaw, oh, you know, Republicans who don't vote for the CR hate the military and wants to see military wives not get paid, people who work on the border not get paid. And, and there's like a truthful component to that, but that's not the way the big picture works. The big picture works is Republicans need to be unified and not signing the CR. And then you get one of two choices, finish appropriations or shut the government down. Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer run more of the government now than the House Republicans do. So if they're not going to be able to figure out anything on the budget, it's going to fall on their shoulders, not Republicans. But unfortunately, like we've seen, 100 or so Republicans always want to vote with the other side of the aisle and pass these things because they get worried about how it's going to look in district, which is what I want to ask you next, uh, Dan. Very important. I'm sure you've gotten out, you've done town halls, you've done some events and stuff like that. What's the reception like seeing that there is a plausible alternative to what they're currently sending to Congress? Well, I, I can tell you the reception is very good. And I, I, I made mention earlier that this this is feeling more like a movement rather than a campaign. This is a movement of people that that are energized. We've got volunteers coming out of the woodwork. You know, the, the, the biggest challenge that this campaign's having is is just trying to get the, the monies in. When you run against the the uh, incumbent. The, the local party shuts down the uh, shuts, shuts down the money, but we, we're going to be competitive in this race. I will tell you right now, not being in this race is not an option. Because if we're not here and we don't win this primary, there's one of two alternatives that are going to happen. You're either going to have a Don Bacon that squeaks through, through a general election and wins re-election, yep. and he's going to be emboldened and more combative with this Trump administration. He's a never-Trumper. So that's going to be a challenge to the Trump administration in their agenda. Or we're going to have a far left Democrat as our congressman that represents District 2, potentially putting at risk the uh, the majority in the House. But but the reception in this district is very good. I'm telling you right now, I don't think Don Bacon wins the primary. But if he does, I certainly think he fails in the general. And that's, that's a shame. You got to get those people behind you, which is where we're going to leave this, but only after you tell our listenership. And listen, Dan, I'm, I'm telling you, we have conditioned our listenership. They're so good at this. We don't donate to the RNC and to the huge apparatus that does nothing for these America First candidates anymore. We encourage our listenership, which is international-wise. It doesn't matter if you're in the state of Nebraska or not. You could still help and contribute directly to your campaign. So I want you to tell everybody about your website and what people can do both in and out of Nebraska to help you in this primary battle against Don Bacon. Here's here's the website. It's my last name. It's my last name. We spell it wrong. It's Fry F R E I. The number four, Nebraska.com. Again, F-R-E-I, the number four, Nebraska.com. Hop on that website. There's there's opportunities if you're here local that you can uh, you can sign up, you can volunteer, you can do phone banks, you can walk neighborhoods. Push that website out as much as you can to other patriots that you think are ready to take back their country. That's what this, this campaign is about. At the end of the day, there's also a, a tab on there that you can donate. And that's extremely important. We need your help. We need your support to 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 take an America first agenda back to D.C. and start to get rid of these these rhino Republicans that campaign as a as a conservative and legislate as as a uh, moderate to, to left liberal. Oh, we're going to be live linking that in the show description today. And anybody that wants to follow you out on social media, I saw you've got the account up already got several thousand followers already checking out all the great stuff you're doing. Where can they find you on places like X? It's, it's going to be Fry for Nebraska, F-R-E-I, the number four Nebraska, either the website or on X, and we're good to go, but, but hop on that website, 
and uh, and you know help help support the campaign. Well, we certainly will be doing that. We'll be looking to sit down with you again soon. This is the candidate who's running in Nebraska's second congressional district, looking to make it America first and take it up to Capitol Hill next year. Mr. Dan Fry, thanks for joining us on the show. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you. Take care now. Two more fantastic editions of the Steak for Breakfast podcast in the books. With a little breaking news. (laughs) Donald Trump in the Judge Angoron case has been fined $354 million for absolutely nothing. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast and want to hear the other 335 editions of the show, just make sure you're subscribed to us across every downloadable podcasting platform. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. In addition, on social medias, Twitter, Getter, True Social, and Instagram, find the Stake for Breakfast accounts, follow them. Hit the notification bell. Never miss out on anything we've got going on here on the podcast. We want to thank all of our guests for coming down today, Congressman Andy Harris and Josh Burkeen, former acting ICE director Tom Homan, supply chain expert Jim Noels, congressional candidate Dan Fry, and one of our absolute greatest of friends, former Deputy Assistant to President Trump, Theo Wold. You guys all helped make steak great again. Guys, I know everyone gets sad when there's a couple days that we're apart, but never fret. We'll be back on Tuesday with two all-new America First heaters. We've got coming in here radio host David Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Newsweek Josh Hammer, senior assistant to President Trump and the Trump campaign Boris Epstein, and congressman from Tennessee Andy Ogles. So on behalf of myself, since it was just me today... Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and take care. under the jurisdiction of just any old fishing license dispenser and stamp pad jockey. We've always been set to deal with the offenders once and for all at their first appearance. Quick as something to a ten-year-old goose. Congratulations. I'm glad to know things are running smoothly for you. Put out that dog rocket! Oh, sir, sorry. In 1796, my forefathers established this seat after the tenants of the old Shire Charter. Shire Charter? Excuse me, sir, that's pre-magna carta, I mean serfdom and fiefdom stuff. Very good, young lady. <laughs> you know, you and I ought to spend a little more time together. Well, I'd, I'd like that. Would you? Well, and more on how they packed me off to Farmers Mechanics University in Gracefield, Ohio for my engineering degree. <laughs> and how I fought the Germans in World War I later. But for now... Later? Wait, ho, 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 no later. Wait a minute, what is this shit? Sir, no cussing in court. We don't want to hear the story of your life. We just want to pay the ticket and get the hell out of here. I'm sorry, Judge. Well, look at him. He's going on and on. This court herewith binds you over for a further appearance to be held at 4 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. We so deem for the public and common good that you be confined herein. So for now...